Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. When you get an opportunity, check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. So this morning, we're going to uh, take a detour from our uh, study in the book of Ephesians and learning about how Christ has transformed our lives. We're going to come back to Ephesians in a few weeks and talk about uh, spiritual warfare and the battles that we're facing. I appreciate our sister's reminder of that really when God calls us to fight against sin and temptation and things like that, it's really about surrendering to Jesus and saying, I, you know, Lord, you're in charge. That's the battle right there of I give in to you, Jesus, and let you rule over my life and let him lead you. And that's what we're going to be learning when we turn to Ephesians chapter 6 a little later this summer. Today, what I'd like to do is just introduce a series of messages over the next couple weeks, just going back to a story in the Old Testament that's probably one of the wildest, weirdest, wackiest stories that you've ever, ever heard. It's probably the one story that you remember from Sunday school way back, and you just thought was so cool, it was so excited because it involved a man falling overboard and getting swallowed by a fish. And that's what you remember about Jonah was that he was swallowed by a fish. And we go, oh, wow. And, you know, as we get older, we kind of wrestle with, well, can a man really survive inside a fish? Is this even possible? You know, is this, you know, what is this miracle that's taking place? But I want to let you know that the story of the prophet Jonah, the runaway prophet Jonah, is really about how great God's mercy is. And unless you're willing to let God's mercy swallow you up, unless you're willing to let his mercy overwhelm your life, then nothing will ever change and you'll never be able to really serve him and use him and bring glory to his name. In fact, I think really one of the messages of the book of Jonah is that, you know, God's mercy makes us merciful and we need to learn to be merciful. And and Jonah struggles with the mercy of God. He's, He's not sure that he needs it. He's running away from it. He doesn't want to give it to people who are very different than him, that he despised, that he refused. And you can maybe think about people who are different than you in this culture. Maybe they're of another race. Maybe they're from another nationality. They speak a different language. Maybe their religion is different than yours. And you just kind of go, ooh, I don't like being with them. Or maybe they're broken. Maybe they've got problems in their lives. Maybe they look just like you, talk like you, but they've, they've made a mess. They've made choices that that have hurt themselves and hurt their families or the people around them. And you're going, what's wrong with you? And you just say, I don't want to be with them. I don't want them in my life. Whatever it is, you know, maybe it's somebody who voted for a different person during the last election. And you just can't stand that. And you don't agree with them. And you think, what is wrong with you? Whatever it is that's causing that division, God wants you and I to understand that he loves them and he wants to show his mercy to them. And he wants to show his mercy to you. And unless we allow the mercy of God to swallow us up, unless we surrender to it, we will never be able to really serve God and do the work that he's called us to do in loving others and welcoming them into the family of God. That's what we've been called to do. Now, I want you to take your Bible and let's turn to Jonah chapter one. Now this is on page, if you wanna use one of the Bibles from the chair in front of you, if you brought your Bible or you've got it on your phone or 
tablet or something like that, that's great. Find Jonah, find chapter one. If you're using one of the Bibles from the chair in front of you, uh, it's on page 774. And I encourage you to follow along, I really do. And something else I wanna remind you of is that this book is so short that you can read it in about 10 or 12 minutes. You could just sit down and you could just read it real quick. In fact, you could probably read it through a couple times in a sitting just to get the thought of the story. In fact, I even thought today, you know, it's kind of like summertime and I'm looking for a shortcut and things like that. I think we're just going to read the book of Jonah in church this Sunday. and We're just going to do that. And, and you know what? There would be something really worth doing like that. That would be valuable. But instead, what we're going to do is be reading it together over the next couple of weeks and looking at and exploring and just pondering what the message of this book is all about. This book is about God's relentless love and his relentless mercy that he wants to show to people, especially people who are different than you and me. And until we're able to experience the relentless love of God and his mercy for us, we'll never have that same kind of mercy towards others. So God's mercy makes us merciful. And that's important for you and I to see. Now, Jonah was a prophet. That means he was called by God to speak for God, to proclaim God's message to whoever God sent him to to talk to. He um, was often in the presence of God. And in a sense, it was like God and the angels talking in heaven, and there was Jonah able to witness some of that somehow. I don't know how that all works, but in a vision or whatever. And he would receive a message from God that he was to declare to the people of Israel. He lived back in like 700 and something B.C., 750 or so, during the the time when the northern kingdom of, of Israel was separated from the southern kingdom of Judah, the, the kingdom of David and Solomon had split in two. And, and Jonah was in that northern kingdom and he was preaching a message and, and uh, he was declaring the good news that God had given to him. In fact, he was a real nationalist. He really loved Israel, Jonah did. And in 2 Kings chapter 14, around verse 23 or so, you read about a king by the name of Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II was king for 41 years. And Jonah preached during this king, King Jeroboam II's reign. And Jeroboam was a very powerful king. He had a, he had a, a, a political philosophy that was, you know, let's make Israel great again, something like that. And, and that's really what was happening during that time. Um, after David and Solomon were kings in Israel, Israel began to decline and their borders began to shrink and they were not as prosperous and they were not militarily strong. But during the time of Jeroboam II, Israel's empire grew and its borders expanded and, and it was very much, it was very uh, strong militarily and, and it, it was financially very prosperous. And Jonah was one who proclaimed, even though our borders have been shrunk, God's going to expand our borders one once again. And so this was, you know, he was a good news prophet and people liked hearing him because he was talking about how Israel was going to be great again, how God was going to bless Israel politically and militarily and economically. But the thing that's so ironic is it, it says in, in 2 Kings chapter 14 that this king Jeroboam II, he was terribly wicked. He was a wicked king. 
And he worshiped idols and he sacrificed infants and he did all kinds of things that were just absolutely repulsive to the eyes of God. And, 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 and it just offended God. And yet God was very kind and merciful in allowing Israel to prosper, grow, and expand. You might be thinking, well, why didn't God drop the hammer on them and, and judge them? Because God's a merciful God. And we hear in Scripture this basic principle that, that His goodness leads us to repentance. God blesses people who do wicked things so that they wake up one day and understand that it's not because of all the sin that I'm doing that makes me so prosperous. It's God has been merciful to me. I deserve His judgment, but He spared me from His judgment. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn away from my sin and make that spiritual U-turn and come back to God. And God is wanting the people of Israel to do that. The thing is... They refuse to do that, and eventually his judgment comes, and the nation of, of Israel winds up being captured by a superpower named Assyria and carted off into captivity. Jonah is in the middle of all this, and he's declaring that God is being merciful to Israel and expanding Israel's borders and all of that. And as, as he loves Israel, and he's a real strong nationalist, he's pro-Israel in every way, he also is against the Assyrians, this mighty superpower to the east and to the north, and he hates them. He doesn't want anything to do with them. Now, you know, if you think about being an American, okay, that's who we are here today, it's our context, who's, who's our great rival? And I'm not going to answer it out loud because maybe you think one country is a bigger rival. Maybe you'll say China. Maybe you would say Russia. Maybe someone else would say, well, it's Al-Qaeda or ISIS or something, some terrorist group. Whatever it is, you could just imagine that, that fear you have of them or that anger you have toward that other nation, that other superpower, whoever it might be. That's the kind of feeling that Jonah has toward the people of Assyria. He despises them. He doesn't want them because he sees the Assyrians as the enemy of Israel. And they should be opposed and resisted at all cost. And yet in a tremendous ironic twist, God, who's invited Jonah to come into his presence to receive the message from the Lord, tells Jonah, Jonah, this is in verse 1 of chapter 1, it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was the great city of the Assyrians. It'd be like sending this American prophet to go to Moscow or Beijing or, or Mosul or somewhere else in the, in the Middle East to go talk to the people that are considered enemies by our country. And God is saying, Jonah, I've given you my word and I want you to go and preach to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh was not the capital of Assyria, but it was like their great city. It was like New York City in the United States. It was the great city. It was a founding city. It was where people went and, and, and all, all the military and, and commerce and things revolved around the city of Nineveh. It was a huge city for that day and age. And God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh and speak to the people there. I want you to tell them the message that I've given to you to give to them. And I want you to notice that the reason why Jonah is to go there, it says, for their evil has come up before me. Now Jonah's 
hatred of the Assyrians and his hatred for the city of Nineveh is not just because they were rivals in baseball or soccer or football or something like that. It wasn't that. It wasn't some little petty thing. This was, these people were very violent and very ruthless. If you go down to Washington, D.C., and you stand in the Lincoln Memorial, and you look at the big statue of, of Lincoln sitting there on that big chair, it's very impressive. And if you look on the walls inside the Lincoln Memorial, you'll see words of his second inauguration. You'll see words from the Gettysburg Address when you go to different monuments and memorials of Lincoln. If you go to the Thomas Jefferson Memorial, you'll see words that he's written, and they're great words. They're, they're very poetic and powerful about their dreams and aspirations for our nation. When you go to the ancient palaces and temples of the kings of Nineveh and Assyria, this is the kind of stuff that they wrote about and put on the walls of their temple. When we captured these kings, we cut their heads off. And then we made out of their heads a necklace and we made the nobles of their kingdom wear their heads as a necklace. We took all the people that we captured in this city after we besieged it. And when we captured them, we killed them. And when we killed them, we peeled their skin off of them and laid their skin on top of the wall like blankets. We cut their bodies up and we peeled the skin off and we laid the skin like piles of rugs on top of the corpses. We put hooks through their mouth and dragged them off into captivity. You get the idea of why Jonah didn't like the Assyrians? They were very violent. They were very cruel. They were very oppressive. They had this air of superiority where they thought everybody else was nobody. They were worthless. Didn't matter what nation, what kingdom they were from, what religion, what God they served. They were, they were inferior to us Assyrians. And we can treat them like dirt and we can oppress them and we can intimidate them. Part of the strength of Assyria's conquest was not its military power, but the fear and intimidation that they pushed against the people that they were attacking. It was the fear of the Assyrians that often made the people capitulate and give in and surrender. Why? Because they were so cruel and ruthless. You can understand why Jonah was very hesitant about going and preaching to the Assyrians. Why he did not want to do that. And that's why in verse 2, God says, their evil, their wickedness has come up before me. It's, it's, it's like, you know, you, you go to flush the toilet in your home or you're working at the sink in the kitchen or something like that, and all of a sudden sewage starts coming up out of it. There's a backup. And it overflows into your house. God says, is when I look at Assyria, it's like the sewage is just backed up. Their wickedness and their evil is so disgusting. It's, it's a stench. It's, it's gross. It's horrible. When I look at them, that's what I see. And Jonah's probably thinking, yeah, that's what I see too. Why don't you go blow them up? Why don't you just squash them? Why don't you get rid of them? But God says, I want you to go and preach to them. Now, when you get to chapter 3, you're going to hear that God gave Jonah an eight-word message. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. 
That's what Jonah has to preach. Now, I don't know if he spoke anything else, embellished it, gave some poems and illustrations to expand on what he was saying there. I don't know. But 40 days, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. And Jonah is the greatest evangelist in all of history because it says the entire city repents, makes a spiritual U-turn, and comes to the God of Israel and surrenders and turns away from their sin. And God spares them. But Jonah, when he's given this responsibility, this commission, to go and preach to the Assyrians, he doesn't want to do it because he hates the Assyrians. He has a real prejudice against them. He's so nationalistic in his pride and his love for Israel, and it's not wrong to love your country. It's not wrong to be proud of your country. But God, you know, Jonah was a great nationalist, but God is a great internationalist. He has a love for all people. And Jonah struggled with that. Why? Because you know what? When we receive God's mercy, we become merciful. God's mercy makes me merciful. God's mercy makes you merciful. And Jonah didn't think he needed God's mercy. He was an Israelite. He was a prophet of God. He was fine and dandy, thank you very much. And yet he wasn't. Because notice what happens in verse three, it says, but Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it and to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now listen, God has given Jonah two commands. I want you to arise, I want you to get up, and I want you to go and cry out against the Assyrians, the people of Nineveh. I want you to do it. I want you to get up and I want you to go cry. I want you to do that. But Jonah instead, he gets up, yes, but then he goes down. <laughs> he doesn't go to Nineveh. He runs in the opposite direction. Nineveh's about 500 and some miles away to the, to the east, and Jonah heads due west to the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. He goes to a port city called Joppa, and he finds a boat, and he gets on the boat. And the interesting thing is, Jonah must have been fairly wealthy because the word that's used here when it says he paid his fare and got on the boat, it's not that he bought a ticket for a seat or a cabin on the cruise ship. It's not that. He actually rented the entire boat. He had the capacity. It says he paid for the entire boat. He chartered the entire ship and the crew, and I want us to go to Tarshish. Now, I know that's one of those favorite vacation destinations you've been looking to, for, right, Tarshish. You ever hear somebody say, they went all the way to Timbuktu? Okay, that's a, a famous city in the center of, of West Africa. It's, it's a majestic place. A lot of mythology and such, but it's a real place, but it's like the furthest away you could possibly go when you talk about Timbuktu. Tarshish was the same thing in ancient Israel. It was about as far away from Israel as you could go. If you ever look at a picture in an atlas or maybe one of those photographs from the space shuttle or weather satellite and you look at the Mediterranean Sea and you've got over here on the map, on the, on the right-hand side of the map and you're looking at uh, the, the, the east side of the map and you see Israel and Egypt and the Nile River and all of that and that's, that's, where, that's where Jonah starts out at. That's where Jerusalem is. That's where Joppa is. And then you begin, if you were to travel further west, you, you, you eventually pass Greece and you pass 
past Sicily and Italy, and Italy looks like, you know, that booth that's hanging down, kicking a football, that type of thing, the, the island of Sicily there. And uh, you keep on going further, there's another set of islands out there south of France, uh, west of Italy, it's called Sardinia. Some people think that Tarshish was a city on the island of Sardinia. Other people say, no, it was on the coast of North Africa where the city of Carthage is and Tunisia and Tripoli is today. Others say, no, 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 he was going to try to sail all the way through the Straits of Gibraltar and go around to the east side of the country of Spain because that's where Tarshish was. Solomon had fleets of ships that traveled and traded, and it says that when they sent ships to Tarshish, it took three years to get there and come back. That's how far away it was, at least in that day and age. It was a far away place. It was exotic. It was distant. And Jonah's thinking, i got to get away from God. I don't want to be standing in the presence of the Lord and hearing his message. And I don't want this responsibility of declaring this message. So I'm going to go as far away as I possibly can. I'm going to go to Tarshish. We're not exactly sure where it is. But it's far away. And there's even a statement in the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, that seems to suggest that in Tarshish, God's glory had not yet been revealed. I don't really know what the prophet means by that. But maybe Jonah had this idea, well, I know God is everywhere. He's the creator of heaven and earth and the sea. I know that. But maybe nobody there knows God. And maybe I can just hide. I can just hang out there and get away from him and dodge this responsibility because I hate the Assyrians and I especially hate Nineveh. I'm not going to go. His pride is standing in the way. Do you see that? His fear is standing in the way. Do you see that? So often you and I, we're afraid to really speak up to somebody who's very different than us. We, we know we're supposed to love them and we know that we're supposed to serve them and we know that we're supposed to welcome them and include them in our lives, but we struggle with that because they're different than us. And maybe we're afraid or maybe we're too proud and we don't want to get involved with them. We're not, we're too busy. We've got, you know, my money is for me and not for them. And, you know, my time is for me and not for them. And so we, we kind of resist that. We don't want anything. We don't want to share the gospel with them. You know, we, we want them to convert and get cleaned up and get sanctified and then they can trust Jesus and get saved. And really God is saying, no, go to them the way they are because I love them just as I love you. See, God's mercy makes me merciful. And part of the problem is that we don't think we need God's mercy because we think we're fine. I'm okay. And that was what Jonah thought. He just doesn't like this responsibility and he's running away because he, he's even trying to maybe save Israel because if the Assyrians get right with God, later on they'll come back to judge Israel and Maybe Jonah thinks, no, I want God to judge Assyria, to spare Israel. For whatever the motivation, Jonah flees. And it says that he goes away from the presence of the Lord. But this is what you need to understand, I need to understand, is that, again, this story is about getting swallowed up in the mercy of God, remember? Allowing God's mercy to overwhelm our lives and admitting our need for Him our need for his mercy, God begins to show great mercy to Jonah. Jonah thinks the Assyrians don't deserve God's mercy. Well, Jonah doesn't deserve God's mercy either, and yet God shows him mercy. 
You and I don't deserve God's mercy, and yet God shows us his mercy. And so look what how God begins to reveal his mercy to Jonah. And instead of being so irritated and frustrated with this rebellious runaway prophet who's being so disobedient, God mercifully extends his grace and mercy to Jonah and begins to pull him back. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind. He flung this great wind like a, like a soldier in ancient times throwing a spear, taking a javelin and throwing it at the enemy. God says, the writer here is saying, God just threw like a, a spear At the ocean, he threw this storm. He threw this wind at them. And it says that God hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest, a great storm on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Now, this was a good-sized ship. I don't know exactly how many people would be on board, but you can imagine a couple decks, and it was long. It was kind of like a big tub. It had a center mast with a square kind of sail, but it also had oars on the side where the sailors could actually work the oars to try to, to move the ship during times of uh, when they were becalmed or, or during a storm. And that's exactly what's going on here. It's a cargo vessel. It's traveling along the coastlines, to try to get to Tarshish, and in the middle of all this, they're caught in this terrible storm because God has thrown like a javelin this storm to the sea. And the ship, it says, it even treats the ship like it's a personality. The ship was ready to break itself up. That's how bad the storm was. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they did their own hurling there. It says they threw the cargo, hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. They were hoping it would make the boat more buoyant. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. You get this picture, you know, Jonah goes down to Joppa, he goes onto the boat, he goes down into the boat, and there he is down in the cargo hold, he's made a nap, you know, he's made a place, a little bed there, and he's sleeping. And he's, a, he's sound asleep, just oblivious to the storm that's going on, all the yelling and screaming and praying that's going on here. Jonah's oblivious to all that, and he's asleep in the bottom of the ship. So the captain came to him, And said to him, this is in verse 6, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. They go down in the hold to find more cargo to throw overboard so the ship will be lighter and won't sink. And as they're down there, they find Jonah fast asleep in the corner of the hold, laying on top of some of the cargo. And the captain says the exact same words that God had said just earlier to Jonah when he called him to this ministry. He says, I want you to arise and I want you to go cry. God had said, go cry to the people of Nineveh that they would repent. The captain says, go cry, get up and go cry and call out to your God because maybe your God will look out for us and help us. You see, in the ancient world, each person would have a a set of deities that they would worship and you know if they went to sea they worship one god and if they were if they were sick they'd worship another god if they were out planting their garden they'd have a different god kind of like how people pray to the different saints today you know keep me safe here i'm looking for something that's lost i'm i I need this help financially and and they pray to the different saints they would pray to these different deities and and they're trying to cover all the bases spiritually and religiously by praying to all these different gods Hopefully one of them will come through and rescue them. And the captain of the ship says, Jonah, you need to get up and start praying too. 
So they start praying to all their different gods. It doesn't say that Jonah started praying, though. And they say to, verse, to one another in verse 7, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. They'd been praying, and no one was answering. So they did what people did back in those days, and it was permitted to do in ancient Israel. They would cast lots. They would have a collection of stones for everybody that was involved. They would mark one of the stones in a special, unique way, and they'd put it in a container and shake it. It's kind of like when you're playing Yahtzee or something like that, and they're shaking it up, and they would, and they would begin drawing the stones out, and whoever drew out the marked stone was the one that the deities were saying, this person has the issue. You need, they need to figure out what's going on. Or they're the one that's the problem. And lo and behold, God starts to control the situation. He makes sure that the lot comes out on Jonah, not Fred or John over here. Jonah gets it. And all of a sudden, the attention of the crew is focused on this passenger who's rented and chartered the entire boat. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? The first question is the most important. And it's this, tell us on whose account has this evil come upon us? They're not saying whose fault is it as much as which God has been offended. And tell us. And, and then they ask all these other things to try to help Jonah figure it out, just kind of bombarded with these questions. Notice how Jonah answers in verse 9. He said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, isn't it ironic that Jonah says he fears the Lord, but he's running away and disobeying the Lord and rebelling against him? I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the God. I worship the God who created the sea and the dry land. This is different than any of the other gods that the men on that boat were worshiping because they were all localized deities in charge of this territory or that territory or this issue in life. But Jonah is saying, I worship the cosmic God, the God that rules over all of the universe, over every part of our creation, both the heavens and the sea and the dry land. He's a universal God. He's in charge of it all. And it says in verse 10, when the men were exceedingly afraid, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And there's a sense of indignation like, what? You're running away from God? You're one of his prophets and you have a job to do and you're not doing it? Are you crazy? This the sense of how foolish could you be to be doing this? And you can imagine why they're so irritated because it's not just Jonah getting himself in a mess, but they're about to drown. <laughs> Thanks, Jonah. <laughs> Thanks for bringing us into your mess and messing up our lives and putting us in danger. Are you crazy? Why in the world would you run away from your God? Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Tell us, what, we're, what are we supposed to do? How do we fix this problem? How do we get the storm to stop? They've, they finally have isolated the problem. It's Jonah. He's rebelling. It's Yahweh, the God of Israel, who's mad, who's pouring out his anger and wrath upon the sea and threatening to swamp the ship and sink it. What do, you, we, what do we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, this is absolutely astounding what he tells them to do. Pick me up. And hurl me into the sea. Treat me like a piece of cargo. (laughs) 
and throw me overboard. Hurl me into the sea. Fling me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now Jonah, this is a good thing. He's taking responsibility. He's saying, this is my fault. I rebelled against God, and this is not going to stop until God gets what he wants. So I want you to throw me overboard. And it could also be that this is kind of a death wish. I don't want to go to Nineveh, so don't put me in a little rowboat and send me back to shore. Just throw me in the water and kill me. Kill me. Jonah's going to ask for that a couple times. Just kill me. Just, just kill me. I'm that mad. And he's maybe thinking, if you just throw me overboard, I'll be dead and this will be done and you guys will be safe. Just throw me overboard. God hurled the wind. They hurled the cargo. Now he says, you need to hurl me into the water. I don't know what you would do in that situation. I'd have trouble doing that. If somebody just said, you need to throw me overboard in the middle of a raging storm. It says, nevertheless, the men rode hard. And the Hebrew word that's used there, you might have a footnote in your Bible that says something like that. It says, literally, they dug into the waves. You can just imagine, you've seen people paddle, and they're really, they're pulling hard. They're really digging in with the oars, and they're just trying to just dig through those waves to try to get the boat to move closer to land. Maybe they'll run aground and find safety. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. It had just said a moment ago that the sea grew more tempestuous, but here notice the author as he writes this is that it grew more tempestuous against them, and he's just emphasizing that they were in great danger. They saw the danger. They, their options were running out. They had prayed to the different gods, and there was no answer. They out it was Jonah. They threw the cargo out. They rode as hard as they could. They did all of these things and all the human resources, all the human options to try to fix the problem had failed. You and I are often swamped by our sin and we're swamped by our fears and anxiety and we're swamped by our habits and hurts. We're swamped by these things and it's like a storm that's threatening to sink us and we try, we try, we try to overcome those things. I can, if I just get a little more money, I can fix this. I can buy my way out of it. If I can just, I need to just read another book. I just need to take another class and I can figure it out mentally. I can get the skills to handle it. If I just had more willpower, if I just had someone to help me train, I, could, I can do this. I can lick this on my own. I can fix it on my own. And what God is trying to show here is there's no resolution to this problem. There's no fixing Jonah's problem. There's no fixing the sailor's problem until they obey God. As hard as it is. Therefore, it says in verse 14, they called out to the Lord. Oh, Lord. And this is amazing because these are Gentiles. These are pagans. They worship all the other deities. All the other gods and goddesses. And here they are. They're crying out to the God of Israel. They're, they're owning him as their God. They called out to the Lord, to Yahweh. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lord, please, please spare us from this storm. Please rescue us. We have no hope of surviving unless you spare us. Don't let us die because of what Jonah has done, this individual's sin. And let us, and lay not on us innocent blood. <laughs> if we throw them overboard, people are going to accuse us of murder. Maybe you'll accuse us of murder. 
But don't do that. Because we're just obeying what your prophet says to do. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. In verse 15 it says, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And look what happens. The sea ceased from its raging. The sea wasn't angry anymore. It got calm. It got quiet. And it says, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I think when they got to land, when they got into port, the first thing that they did was they offered a sacrifice and they began worshiping the God of Israel. They feared the Lord greatly and began honoring and worshiping and serving him. Why? Because they weren't afraid of the storm anymore. They were afraid of the God who was over the storm, who controlled the storm. And see, that's what we're called to do is to not fear the circumstances of our lives, to not fear the the intimidating people around us, to not fear disease and hardship that may come upon us. We're called to fear the Lord, to reverence Him, to hold Him in highest awe, to surrender to Him and to worship Him because He controls the sea and the storms. He holds our lives in His hands. He can do with us what He wishes and whatever will accomplish His will. So notice in this story so far what God has done. You see, God is trying to show Jonah how merciful he is. And he's just getting Jonah to the place where he surrenders to the mercy of God. You see, God's mercy makes me merciful. And God is trying to teach Jonah about his mercy, God's mercy. And so mercifully, even though Jonah is running away, God sends a storm, a terrible storm, a violent storm, a life-threatening storm. That's an act of God's mercy to get their attention and Jonah's attention. And then God begins stirring in the crew through the lots, through their questions, through their praying and their worshiping and all the things that they're trying to do to figure out what to do to try to save themselves. Even when they wrestle with the issue of do we throw Jonah overboard or not? Is there some other way to fix the problem or not? God is working through the crew to get Jonah's attention until Jonah finally says, I know it's my fault. I know it's because of me. If I obey God and you obey God, God will spare us. And so when God finally gets his way and the crew picks up Jonah and throws him into the sea, God spares the crew. No one loses their lives. They're saved. But you might be thinking, well, what about Jonah? God does something else to be merciful to Jonah and to rescue him. Look at verse 17. And the Lord appointed... The Lord ordained a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. God arranged it so that as Jonah is sinking, this big sea creature is swimming up to him. I don't know what the creature was thinking. I don't know what it's like. I can't explain it. But the sea creature opens its mouth. Jonah gets sucked in. And God spares Jonah's life. 
we don't have time to go into great detail about what kind of fish this was. I have no idea. There are the kinds of whales that have big enough mouth to swallow a man, but their throats are really narrow. And so I don't know what, how that works. And then there are other whales that have mouths that are big enough to swallow men whole and have big enough throats, but then they've got all these teeth. And that just looks like that might be a little choppy on the way in or something. I don't know, okay? So that could be a problem. Maybe it was something God supernaturally created. Maybe it's some other fish that God adapted. Maybe it's another creature that's not in existence anymore. I I don't know what it is. I also have a question of how does a man live inside of a fish for three days and stay alive and breathe and all of that. And I'm not exactly sure how to explain that either, except that it is a miracle. Did Jonah die? And then when he gets hurled by the fish onto the sea, onto the uh, um, beach, does he, does he somehow get resuscitated like a Lazarus or like the widow uh, whose son died that Elijah the prophet brings back? I don't know. But God is working through all this. You see, as I read this story and I think about God's mercy makes me merciful, God's mercy makes you merciful, as I think about this, Jonah is receiving the mercy of God because God's not finished with him. And we're going to see what happens while Jonah's inside the fish next week when we read together a beautiful prayer, one of the most beautiful prayers in all of Scripture was composed inside the belly of a fish. And as we read this and learn all this, I I want you to see something that just really encourages me. I don't know if you've noticed. Do you notice how this story sounds an awful lot like the time Jesus was on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples and the big storm comes and what's Jesus doing? He's asleep and the disciples are panicking and they're scared to death and they're threatened with drowning. The ship is gonna swamp and sink and they're all gonna perish and what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. Jonah was asleep in the hold of the ship He was descending into the ship to death. He describes in chapter two how he sunk into the waters when he was thrown overboard, how he was swallowed by the fish, and all of this when he talks about him going down and descending. It's this picture of Jonah descending to death and descending to the grave. He's going to suffer God's judgment. And here in in places like Matthew chapter 12 and Luke chapter 11 where the story is Jesus of, uh, and talking to the, the Pharisees and, and they demand a sign and Jesus says, the only sign you're gonna get is a sign of Jonah, three days in the belly of the fish. And so will be the son of man when he's three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And somebody greater than Jonah is here. And I think that as we look at this, we see Jesus going into the boat and descending into sleep and descending to his own death, eventually going to the cross and dying for us. Jonah is going down and descending to judgment. Jesus is descending to judgment to take the judgment for you and I so we could be rescued, so we could receive new life, so we could be forgiven. It's the ultimate act of God's mercy. And unless you're willing to let the mercy of Jesus Christ swallow you up, 
you'll never be merciful to other people. One of the big lessons in, in Jonah is how in the world can God's people not share the gospel with other people? How in the world can we let race and let um, maybe someone's behavior or their age or their ethnicity or background or whatever it is, these differences, these walls that we erect around each other to keep us from being with each other, how in the world can we let those things stand? We should knock them all down. Why? Because the mercy of God makes us merciful. And we ask, why in the world wouldn't Jonah go and share the gospel? Because he had never experienced the mercy of God himself. And I think in this story, we see ourselves in Jonah, whoever we are, wherever we've come from. I'm Jonah. And I need the mercy of God. And so do you. You might be thinking, but I don't because I got my act together. And I just want to let you know, no, you don't. All you need is a good storm to shake you, and you'll see that you don't have your act together. But there are some of us here who have the grace of God working in our lives, and we see ourselves trapped in sin, and we're hung up with the hurts of our past. And we've got these negative attitudes and we've got these habits that control our lives and we have these things that we're fighting against and maybe not fighting against, but we want to change and we want to be set free and we want all of that, but it's something that we have trouble admitting and asking for help. And that's called denial. And until you step out of the darkness of denial and like God's light and admit the need and humble yourself, you'll never experience the mercy of God. God's mercy makes us merciful. Have you experienced the mercy of God? Have you trusted in God's Son, Jesus Christ, who said, peace be still and calm the storm? Because he was going to the cross to die in your place and mine to give us new life. I hope you have had have received that mercy and received the forgiveness and healing and restoration that God offers to every one of us. We need his mercy so we can be merciful. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, I thank you that you are the God who created the sea and the dry land. You're the God of heaven who controls all the universe. And the thing that is remarkable to me is here's Jonah, a runaway prophet that would be very easy for you to write off and say, fooey on you, I'm done. But you don't. You chase him down. Your mercy is relentless. It's severe. It's unstoppable. And I thank you for the mercy that you have shown us ultimately in Christ. That he gave himself for us. To calm our storm to save us from our sins, to make us whole again, to give us your mercy. I pray now, Lord, that you would help us be merciful because we've received your mercy through Christ. I ask that you would bless my brothers and sisters, my friends and family, our guests, anyone who's here today, anyone who's listening to this, I ask that we would receive your mercy. And I pray this in your most merciful name. Amen.